0: Welcome back. It's Kevin Ellis and it's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Well, we just spent an hour talking about the presidential campaign, the ins and outs. Now we're going to spend the next hour going deep down the rabbit hole of the international community. Um, the the You'll notice, you'll remember that uh, that the country of South Africa filed a case against the country of Israel at a place called the international criminal court well what is the international criminal court i I thought we would spend an hour going through that uh it, it, it it exists uh to adjudicate cases in a place called the hague what is the hague i know it's in the netherlands but i i figured that listeners uh could use a crash course in what are all these international tribunals how do they work well, our guest is Paul Risley who is has been a senior advisor to uh the UN uh, Court of Justice. He's been a senior aide to uh many US senators and members of Congress. He's worked for uh the Clinton White House and all manner of other uh places. He's he's also been a uh, a spokesman for uh the United Nations in, in war-torn areas like the Balkans, if we remember all the way back to that. Uh, and he has lots of deep roots in Vermont, where he was uh, a spokesman for, oh, I'm going to get the title of this thing wrong. We'll get to it later. But uh, when health care reform became a, a cause celeb in Vermont, Paul was here, and he was a part of that as well. And I think we have him from whatever international outpost he's calling in from. Welcome, Paul Risley, to the show.
1: Good morning. Good morning, Kevin Ellis. It's great to hear your voice.
0: (laughs) Well, it's been too long. Uh, Full disclosure, let's see, uh, for listeners, let's see. When I was a young reporter in Washington, D.C., Paul Risley was a press secretary on Capitol Hill, and we spent a lot of time together. I'm not sure we can remember that far back, can we? I
1: I think I met you first in the Nashville airport. So that must have been in the prehistoric days, uh in the in the eighties.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. Okay. Okay. Uh, you are a, Great. a long time you're a longtime veteran of uh work with uh, the United Nations. Can you why don't we do this to, to – help inform our listeners, why don't we educate us a little bit about your biography and, and what you've been doing all these years with UN-sponsored organizations?
1: Um, sure, Kevin. Uh, as you as you mentioned earlier, uh, I'm one of the old people, and uh, I started my career uh, working in Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill, uh, because that was something when I was growing up, I was completely bitten by the politics bug, and that's what I wanted to do. And I spent roughly 10 years working on Capitol Hill, and then, as you say, working in part for the Clinton administration in the mid-90s, when that came. Um, While I was there working on the very first healthcare initiative, both in Vermont and in the U.S., Uh, I received a call from a good friend who was working with the United Nations. At the time, there was a terrible civil war going on in Yugoslavia. Uh, And after a couple of months in those pre-internet days, everything had to go by mail or fax. Uh, But I received an appointment and I served as the deputy spokesperson for the UN peacekeepers caught in a place called Yugoslavia which no longer exists. It's now broken up into seven smaller countries. Um, And I spent a good part of a year uh, watching a terrible conflict and recognizing that UN peacekeepers are only as powerful as the countries that send them. And when countries are not willing to engage with warlords and engage with uh, bad armies and bad countries, Uh, Little is done, and this is very, very much seen in today's world. Um, So I left after a year's experience with the United Nations in Yugoslavia, thinking that the U.N. didn't work, that this was a failure. Uh, As your listeners might understand, this is when the massacre at Srebrenica happened, where probably 11,000 men and boys uh, were machine gunned to death. Uh, solely on the basis of their ethnic origin, because they were Bosnian Muslims and they were killed by Bosnian Serbs. Uh, and it was a terrible feeling of sort of helplessness, that the world could sort of stand by and watch this. Um, soon after working in D.C. for several years, I again wanted to rejoin the U.N. And an experimental part of the U.N., the International criminal tribunal for the former Yugoslavia that was based in the Hague. And as you said earlier, the Hague is sort of the world center for international justice. And it's home to the international court of justice, the international criminal court. And it was home to many of these smaller special tribunals that focused on countries, particularly in Africa, uh, but also in Yugoslavia. And the Yugoslavia tribunal was successful. Uh, and it, I think there were over 140 uh, persons who were found guilty of war crimes uh, and of crimes against humanity and of genocide uh, and served sentences. Many of them are still serving sentences in prisons, not only in the Netherlands, uh, but in various parts of Europe. And various countries cooperate and put these people behind bars where they should be. Um so that was a quite exciting high point, if you will, in the United Nations ability to provide international justice to the world. Well um, and since then I, I moved on and in, into humanitarian work after that. So
0: and so so I, I gotta uh, rem- I mean in the headlines back then there was a Bosnian-Serb warlord named Radovan Karadzic, and maybe you could talk to us about him. He was in the headlines. People might remember his name.
1: You know, there were, there were two names that struck most people who were the leaders of the Bosnian-Serb republic. Uh, and one was this Dr. Radovan Karadzic, and he sort of looked like a wild man, and he was a psychiatrist before the war. And then he decided he wanted to be the leader of his people. Uh, And he was essentially a warlord who uh, gave orders for the ethnic cleansing and the execution and imprisonment of literally thousands, if not even hundreds of thousands, of Bosnian Muslims. Um, The senior military commander for this same group of very violent people was Ratko Mladic. You know, and again, these these were two names that were seen in the headlines uh, and, and very much identifiable because of the sort of obscure Slavic names. Uh, both of these men, Karadzic and Mladic, both of these people, I, you know, as part of UN delegations during the war in 1994 and 95, I had to meet and sit across tables from uh, and listen to their rants. Both of these men are now in their 80s, and they're behind bars, Uh, one in The Hague uh, and one in the United Kingdom.
0: Um, Okay, so that sets the table for us. (laughs) Now, let's move – thank you. Let's move to the Israeli uh, war with Hamas uh, and the Middle East. Uh, There is an international criminal court there's a. Can you tell us about that? What is it? How does it work? And what's going on there now?
1: Well, so there's two big international courts that are located in The Hague, uh, and they're often mistook for each other, but they're easy to tell to separate. One is the International Criminal Court, and that looks for individuals that commit crimes of war, crimes against humanity. Uh, And it it acts as the world's prosecutor, essentially. And it seeks to find individuals and try them. It's a very new court. It's only been in existence for maybe 15 years in an active sense. Um, And most of its uh, the people, the charges that it has brought so far in its early young history have been African continent conflict figures, you know, because uh, Africa is a place on this planet that has suffered more than its share of conflicts and violence, uh, and complete, uh, murderous intent by warlords, uh, and, and others. So, uh, perhaps your listeners know there's this guy named Joseph Kony, who is sort of a Uganda figure who was kidnapping boys and girls all over Central Africa 10 years ago. He is wanted by the ICC. He has not been found yet or apprehended or brought to the court, uh, but he has been indicted and he is wanted. Uh, Essentially, the ICC acts like a sheriff in the Wild West. Uh, And, you know, they can identify people that they want to try, that they want to bring to justice, but it's up to the member states. It's up to each country that is a member of the court. And that's probably 80% of the countries of the world right now. Uh, It's up to them to apprehend a person and bring them to the court. Um, The U.S. was very much a founding member of the International Criminal Court uh, in helping to set it up in helping to design it and showed intent to join uh under the first bush uh, under the second bush presidency in two thousand and two the the bush White house uh moved away from the court um and the u s has never returned to gain membership in the international criminal court since then uh and Republican Party figures, and certainly Donald Trump and others, are very suspicious of the International Criminal Court, and they believe that, you know, American uh, military would be vulnerable to being arrested and charged with war crimes. Uh, The same can be said for Israel. Israel is not a member of the International Criminal Court, uh, presumably for the same reasons. So it's an interesting situation where you have a A new court, it's doing active work, um, but a very powerful country, the U.S., other powerful countries, China, Russia, are not members of the ICC. Um, But for small countries, the ICC is seen as a very important way to protect the rule of law uh, in their countries, and certainly the European countries are very strong supporters of it.
0: Paul, uh, let's take on Israel now. We we've got, um, yeah. You know, people can be forgiven for reading a headline that says the country of South Africa has brought a case <laughs> to the International Court of Justice against Israel for its uh, war in against Hamas in Gaza. Can you take us through that bit by bit?
1: It's a it's a complicated, bit, But um, of course. The war in Gaza right now uh the initial Hamas terror attacks against completely innocent people in Israel, and then the resulting sort of comeback by Israel by the Israeli defense forces uh that are among the most probably the most professional and the most powerful military in the world, you know one of the most right for its for its size. Israel maintains a very powerful military force. Um, and the violence that we have seen since then, uh for three months since October sixth, uh, has just been so saddening and so appalling and so dangerous for the world because this is this is exactly the sort of conflict that could lead to further conflict, uh and could take up the much more fragile nations nearby like Lebanon, or Iraq, or, you know, even uh, Jordan next door. Um, the, The danger here is that the war doesn't seem to be stopping, the fighting, and it seems to be Israel right now and its leader, Bibi Netanyahu, deciding, you know, what the volume of this war will be. The Hamas people... Uh, are guerrilla fighters, I guess. You can think of them that way. Uh, They're hiding behind civilians. They're hiding uh, behind, you know, what is essentially a 20-mile-by-five-mile strip of land that is completely surrounded by Israel or by the water or by the Egyptian border. Um, People who live in Gaza have no way to get in or out. There are literally three entrances – Two are controlled by Israel and one by Egypt. Um, The war, the longer it goes on, the more civilians will die. Uh, And the two million or so people who live in the Gaza Strip, um, for the most part, are very youthful. Probably 50% or more are under the age of 18, are essentially children. it's a very dangerous situation. South Africa is a developing country that sees itself as very close to the Palestinian cause. Uh, and charges of apartheid that have been brought against Israel. Uh, of course, you know, the word apartheid comes from South Africa, and it describes uh, the white power structure before 1993, that ruled over a majority black country for years. Um, South Africa uh, pulled off the miracle. Uh, They were able to peacefully change their system of government and to become a proper democracy. Um, They still have lots of problems, but they're certainly on the right side of stability uh, and peace and democracy. Israel itself, is a very interesting case because, of course, uh, it has a proud history as a strong democracy, uh, and people who are citizens of Israel uh, enjoy the rights of a great democracy in an open and transparent society. The difficulty is that the Palestinian cause has continued for 75 years, uh, and the Palestinians have been left out. Of the benefits of democracy, uh, and the benefits of development, right? Israel itself is a very wealthy country, uh, and the people enjoy a high standard of living. Um, a hundred meters away across a fence in Gaza, uh, it is as if you're going back in time and people use horses and they carry, you know, pulling wagons, you know, around in order for transport. So it's a very different setup. South Africa brought their case to the International Court of Justice and said they believed that the Israeli Defense Forces' attacks on a largely civilian population were clear signs of genocide. Um, The International Court of Justice can only issue claims from one state to another state. They can't look at individuals like the ICC, but the ICJ can suggest And order states to stop certain actions, do different things. They can give them orders. They can give them rulings. In this case, the International Court of Justice said very quickly that uh, that Israel's military actions were plausibly, plausibly acts of genocide. And thus, Israel needed to quickly and immediately restrain its forces um, especially when it came to the killing of civilians, they had to stop risking the lives of civilians within Gaza. Um, and again, this is an example of the International Court of Justice, which is a very prestigious and old body that's been there since 1905, um, attempting to become an active court. You know, and they weren't waiting six months to issue a ruling. They were they issued their ruling within 72 hours. Of, Of arguments being made. Um, They're attempting to insert themselves into a political situation and to try to persuade or convince Israel to slow down uh, and to take seriously uh, issues of war crimes, issues of of how they are prosecuting their war. Whether that works or not is an open question. And for once, uh, quite shockingly, the U.S., which normally completely supports rulings by the International Court of Justice, in this instance, the U.S. Uh, says it has no position. It is not saying that it endorses or supports the ruling. Um, and to many legal followers, that's quite shocking. That's quite a surprise.
0: Can you uh, now put on your uh, former ha- your your hat? Uh- <laughs> as an aid to U.S. senators, take us in the room. I mean, what goes into that decision by the United States to, to not do that? It, it, you know, there's domestic politics at play here. There's a presidential election at play. Gosh, can you, can you try to pick it all apart for us? Can you
1: think of a more complicated situation? You know, th- this is a situation where even, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders would not be able to give us a direct uh, explanation for the behavior. Uh, In this instance, it's very complicated, right? For for many, many reasons, the U.S. is the closest strategic partner that Israel has in the world. You know, the U.S. arguably has its closest relationship with the United Kingdom, but the U.S.-Israel relationship Uh, especially in terms of military connections, is probably the tightest in the world. Uh, And, you know, sadly, uh, the weapons that the Israeli defense forces are using in Gaza today um, are American-made. You know, these are U.S. weapons. Um, For the Biden administration, this is a very difficult situation because they would like to be able to ask Israel, To slow down, to accept a ceasefire, uh, to begin looking for ways to negotiate a solution rather than prosecute one. Um, And ultimately, they want uh, Israel to be able to present a plan for after the fighting stops. Because after the fighting stops, there will be two million people who live in Gaza, and they will continue to live there. Uh, And if Israel takes no steps to assure their safety uh, and to make sure that their well-being is looked after, Uh, the hatred and the wars and the violence will continue. They will persist. You know, maybe five years later, there will be more. Um, I think with an election coming up, the Biden administration, you know, the foreign policy advisors such as Secretary of State Biden... um, um, Blinken and others, um, have a very difficult position. They don't have the real ability to, uh, to push down on Israel. Uh, they don't have that leverage. Um, but on the same hand, they don't want to appear to, uh, they, well, they don't want to leave the world open for a further escalation. Uh, you know, in, okay. in what would be the worst, of course, would be a, a war with Iran.
0: Uh, Paul, how do we get to yeah. a, a stop in this war? Uh, you know, I know that the word ceasefire is is politically charged. Bernie Sanders doesn't use it. Others do. But but what does it take to stop the fighting?
1: Well, I mean, that's, you know, the, the brutal honesty here is that we, uh, you know, that Israel itself and its political establishment, which is led by a very sort of radical uh, prime minister for 20 years, you know, from the far right side of the political spectrum, uh, he really, being Netanyahu, he really controls uh, the tempo of this hostility. Um, if uh, if he is ready politically. Uh, He will accept some sort of a ceasefire, uh, and he will probably or likely reduce uh, the amount of of fighting that's going on. Um, But it's very difficult to see Netanyahu himself, who has spent 20 years uh, not agreeing to the creation of a separate, independent Palestine state. Uh, it's very difficult to see him suddenly changing his mind and agreeing uh, to allow some sort of recognition of the Palestinians' rights, um, you know, to to give them some sort of a positive path forward uh, that ends with their independence as well. Presently, Gaza itself, for international legal purposes, is considered part of Israel. You know, Israel made a point 20 years ago of sort of withdrawing from inside Gaza, but they still control the borders. Um, So again, you know, some people, uh, there is a minority of people who who support a peaceful resolution who are, you know, within Israeli politics. Uh, And to them, the answer is, you know, we've got to get rid of Netanyahu first. He's got to step down. Uh, He's got to get out of the way and to allow other uh, political forces and figures to come forward and figure out a more peaceful way uh, between Israel and Palis- Palestinians, both in the Gaza Strip, but also in the West Bank region, uh, where you know, which is sort of seen as the uh, the center or the capital of an envisioned Palestinian state. Um, but until you get there. Uh, until you can bring the Israelis around from a political point of view, uh, it's more likely that there will continue to be this sort of festering violence, uh, especially in Gaza, uh, and that's very dangerous for countries like Yemen, like Lebanon, like Syria, Iraq, Jordan, all around.
0: But let let me ask you. Uh, an overly simplistic question, but it was asked of me by a, a friend from Egypt, um, who said to me, mm-hmm. "If Joe, if Joe Biden wanted to stop uh, this war, he could just tell Israel to stop their attack, and it would happen. Uh, we're funding it; our weapons are are being used. Why do not the United States just tell Israel to put a stop to this?"
1: Oh, I mean that. That is the $64 question, right? Um, And if this dispute were going on anywhere else in the world but between Israel and Palestinians in Gaza, if this dispute were between two other places, anywhere else, uh, there would be an immediate support for bringing the United Nations in, introducing UN peacekeepers, uh, using the instruments of the United Nations to support a cessation of hostilities, right, to reduce the violence. Um, It's very difficult to do that with Israel uh, and the Palestinian question. This is, uh, for 75 years, has defied the sort of interventions that work in other countries. Um, I think your friend is absolutely correct. I think the U.S. could um, prevent this from going on um is biden the president who can do that um is the biden administration secretary of state blinken and others do they have uh the strong leadership required uh it possibly would even be brinksmanship in order to persuade netanyahu to step down to back down uh and to to slow the violence down
0: um you have, in your long career, you've been, as you said, you, you've been in rooms with some pretty odious people. Uh, and you've been in rooms where these kinds of really hard negotiations take place. Take us in, I know Secretary Blinken is is over there right now, I believe. Take us into the yeah. room uh, and sit us next to Secretary of State Antony Blinken and others when he's meeting with Netanyahu and and uh people are the leaders of Qatar and Saudi Arabia. What's it like in the room? How do, and how do you try to get to some sort of ceasefire deal where hostages are exchanged, etc. What what's that like?
1: Well, I mean that's what is so uh unique uh and in some ways fascinating about this is can Tony Blinken um can he handle sort of this shuttle diplomacy that is necessary uh between probably four key states, right? Egypt, Israel, Qatar, uh which is a small oil and natural gas rich principality in the Gulf states, um, and Saudi Arabia, because they're so big. Um, you know, Israel with Bibi Netanyahu is the closest thing you have to a working democracy of all these countries. Um, and possibly when Blinken is negotiating with Netanyahu, he can apply sort of political pressures, you know, and he can sort of point out that, you know, that that the political calculations rec- should require him to back off at some point. When you're talking to the ruler of Saudi Arabia uh, who was accused of murdering a Washington Post journalist who was living in Turkey at the time. This was four years ago. Uh and you know he's the leader of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. When Blinken goes into a room alone with him, his his initials are MBS, and that's how people refer to him. Um MBS likes to threaten people. He likes to tell uh, people what he thinks of the world around him. And he is a ruler. He is not he doesn't govern in a democracy. He doesn't have to worry about votes every four years, right? He's the ruler. He is the leader. Um the same is true in Qatar. The same is true to an extent in Egypt. There you have a, a military junta that is in charge and a general Sisi um who wants to do the right thing. Um, but again he doesn't have to worry about elections and really politics, um, and in a way, that means he's lacking, right? That doesn't give him that impetus you might need in negotiations like this. Um, so I, I'm sure it's a very strange gambit uh, for for Blinken. I'll tell you once in Bosnia in 1994, I was in a meeting with this terrible dictator, this guy Radovan Karadzic uh, and uh, General Ratko Mladic, Uh, And the Japanese diplomat who was the U.N. special envoy, so he was the the senior most U.N. official, and his job was to bring peace to Bosnia and bring peace to Yugoslavia. Um, And at the time, the pope, uh, Pope John Paul, I think it was, uh, wanted to come visit Yugoslavia, and he wanted to fly into Sarajevo during the siege of Sarajevo. And the Japanese diplomat had to raise this with Radovan Karadzic. And Karadzic said, no, of course the Pope cannot visit the Bosnian Muslims. Uh, In fact, it is not safe, uh, and we refuse to permit the flight. The Japanese diplomat waited, then he tried another tack. He said, look, the Bosnian Muslims say that they will protect the life of the Pope. They want him to come. Please, will you allow his plane to come in? And again, Karadzic said, look, the Muslims might shoot the plane down and then blame the Bosnian Serbs, so we can't take that risk. Japanese diplomat waited. He tried again. He said, look, you know, we will guarantee the safety of this plane and bring it in. And Radovan Karadzic exploded and cursed at the Japanese diplomat in front of all of us at the table. And he said, we will shoot that plane down. No planes fly. Right? So... You know, again, this is how people who don't work within democracies operate when they're in a small room, you know, and negotiate.
0: Right? <laughs> and with you know, and with that, fun, you know. And, and with that bright note, uh, we have to go. <laughs> uh, uh, we had a caller on the line, but she, I'm not going to be able to get to it because we have to get to another guest. Vinny, if you send us an email. I will get that email to Paul Risley. Great. He will answer the question, and we will answer the question either on the air or in an email to you. I'm so sorry that we have to take this break. Paul Risley, our guest, I will be uh, as always, that. thank you. Thank you for joining us. It's great to talk to you. And, and thank, thank you, you, too. We are back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. And for our last segment, a story that will inspire you. I was uh, scrolling through, gosh, I think it was Instagram uh, recently, and I I found uh, this story uh, that was told by a a woman named Tabitha Moore, and she is the uh, founder of the Rutland area branch of the the NAACP. She is a therapist and among many other skills and talents, and she has a story to tell us. Um, Tabitha Moore, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thanks Kevin. It's
0: good to be here with you. So uh, I, uh full disclosure when I stumbled across your inspiring message uh I, I had it didn't even know that you uh lived in Vermont. So it's a it's a great uh it's a great coincidence. Uh you were flying home from Was- from work in Washington D.C. and uh and you decided to fork over in your words $59 to go to the United Airlines lounge and because uh, you had to wait for your flight and you had some client calls to make why don't you take it from there
2: yeah so again i've been doing some work with some folks in the national security space and you know around diversity equity and inclusion which as you know there's a lot going on around this topic uh, especially this year and um, so I'm sitting in the, it's my first time, 46 years old, first time in one of these lounges. And I was like, okay, now I know what I've been missing. But I, you know, I, I hurriedly in and I sat down across from this this person and they were on some calls too. So we never exchanged greetings or anything, but over the next hour and a half or so, you know, we were both intermittently on calls or things like that. We never actually got to exchange anything or talk and, You know, we're trying to be polite of each other and the fact that we're both there working. And um, about two hours in, I was on um, my last call before my flight, and I was actually on with uh, my friend Kate Littlefield, who's helping me to design my slide deck for my dissertation defense, because I'm defending my dissertation next Wednesday. And it's on um, racially responsive policing, And so we were throwing around terms like race and racism and, you know, anti-race, you know, all the all the buzzwords around this this topic that is unfortunately so very charged right now. And I was trying to be quiet, which is hard because I have a very loud voice, but I was trying to be very quiet. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye that the person had started moving and they started moving toward me. And I was like, oh, what's good? Because the only thing next to me was the wall. And so I'm like, this is going to go one of two ways. Right. And so. They walked over and they were, you know, very just kind of um almost apologetic and they handed me this piece of paper and you know started to nervously walk away and I looked down and I read it and it said, Good luck on your dissertation defense. I heard you mention it earlier, I'm sure you'll do great. And it was just not only was I very relieved, but it was just so heartwarming to have somebody, you know, they don't know me from anybody. They didn't have to reach out and, and just give this act of goodwill. But it was just this very humanizing moment between us. But my immediate response was, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry I was talking so loud. And they were like, I'm sorry I was listening in. And we just kind of, you know, laughed for a moment. And it was just I was so grateful and so thankful, not just because it's my dissertation defense, but because, again, this topic is so charged and people have all kinds of feelings about it. And um, it just was super, it was just lovely, I guess, is the only way to describe it.
0: And and you and you posted a, a picture of of the note online, um, and I, I can't help but ask, you know, that that interaction could have gone a very different direction.
2: It could have. And I think that that's one of the things about working in this identity based equity space, the space around race and racism, or, you know, you hear it a lot with gender and gender identity. And right now, with everything that's happening uh, with Gaza and Palestine and Israel, there's just so much. Um, we're, we're all so tense in the world, right? And there seems to be this additional permission for people to just lash out at others who are just being. And um, so I'm very, very much aware of that, especially as a black woman. And um, my goodness, it was such a wonderful experience. And I actually, I carry that note with me now. Um, and I wanted to share it with other people because I think, you know, whatever the situation, we're all kind of fighting for this sort of thing, right? We're fighting for peace and um, and humanity. And I think that there are small ways that we can do that for each other in addition to these larger things that are happening.
0: And tell us if you would uh the three takeaways. I have them written down. I hope you do too. But the the three I do. takeaways yeah. I think it was I think it was on your Instagram post. Tell us the three takeaways you took from that encounter.
2: Yeah, I it's, so the first one is that humanity can be really awesome sometimes, right? There's something that we're all fighting for. And can we get there? Right. And the second one is that you don't have to be in someone's life for a long time to have a lasting impact. Like I said, I carry this note around with me. Um, everywhere I go, just as that kind of fuel. And I think the third, and this one's a little tongue-in-cheek, but the, the United Lounge was totally worth it. I 10 out of 10 recommend it, even though the cookies were burnt. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I you know, back when I traveled for business all the time, uh, I once plunked down, I think, 200 bucks for the U.S. Air Lounge for the mm. year. That's what it costs for the year. And you're right, it is a life-changing experience where they check you in and there's water and soft drinks and cookies and a comfortable chair. Uh, you you think helped. you've died and gone to heaven. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. It was really, I, I definitely will do it again. I don't know if I can spend this $650 a year uh, for the lounge, but I could certainly every once in a while afford that, especially if those are the kinds of experiences I can have there.
0: <laughs> Tabitha, I wonder um, – it's Black History Month. Uh, we began the show with, uh, me talking about that moment at the Grammys with, uh, with, uh, the, the country singer along with Tracy Chapman singing that duet, uh, Fast Car and how, sub, you know, for, for just a brief moment, audiences from, uh, two different, very different artists came together as, as sort of one what's on your mind uh, as as we think about Black History Month?
2: Um, well, it's, it's interesting that you should talk about that particular situation because I was responding to a friend who posted this thing about that. But as we're in Black History Month, you know, for me, the biggest takeaway is that nothing is typically, nothing is either or. It's can we see the humanity in the situation um, and use that to move forward through through pain, but also to recognize and celebrate the excellence um that is blackness and in the case of uh Tra- Tracy Chapman and uh Luke Luke Combs I think is his name um right <laughs> honestly for me what it reminds me of is how much of our history is really rooted in black contribution to the united states and let's just you know celebrate that this month
0: well and on the on the it's the 60th anniversary of the beatles arriving in new york city and oh, wow. for their first concert tour and nobody uh paid respect to black history uh, like the Beatles in their in the sense of they they paid tribute to the, the those artists that came before them and basically said our music uh, comes out of the black community. And yeah. um, I, I think I, I think we all could learn a thing or two from the Beatles sixty years ago. I love it. Yeah. Uh, Tabitha Moore, thank you. It's a great great to discover you online, and we'll have you back on the show to talk about uh, bigger and deeper issues. But for today, thanks for giving us uh, such an inspirational moment. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. Well,
2: thanks for sharing it with everyone, too.
0: Okay. Thanks Let's for joining one. us. Tab- that's Tabitha Moore. Uh, she's a therapist and uh, a diversity, equity, inclusion consultant, uh, she's a, one of the founders of the uh, NAACP chapter in Rutland, and what a great moment. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's our show for today. Mari, thanks to our guests, Stuart Stevens, Paul Risley, and Tabitha Moore. Be sure to follow them online, read them, uh, and they're interesting and provocative people, and uh, we can all learn something. Uh, remember to join me Friday for uh, this week's Week in Review and continuing observation of black history month our guests will include professor pamela walker of uvm whose study of how the postal service helps sustain the civil rights movement is the subject of an upcoming book uh, we'll have many other guests uh, you can hit me up on twitter as always uh, email me at uh, vermont viewpoint at dot our goal is always to illuminate and inform and have some fun along the way by the way Uh, We're going to have Seven Days reporter Kevin McCollum on the show Friday to talk about the latest uh, uh, issue going on right here in Waterbury, and we're going to have folks from the Vermont Outdoor Business Alliance here to talk about how mountain biking, hiking, beer, and all the other things are uh, attracting people to Vermont from all over the world. You can find me at kevinkellis.com, or you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter and podcast. Our show is produced by me. Engineered Made Possible by Steve Cormier, Danny McGivrigan, Lee Cattell, Greg Titus, and all the folks at WDEV. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Friday for more discussion of politics and culture in Vermont and beyond. Wherever you are, join us right here on the friendly pioneer. It's Vermont Viewpoint Live Radio on WDEV.